Now, when he goes to Jerusalem for about 10 or 12 days, there are three things. Number one, the cleansing of the temple. Number two, the performance of many miracles. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. And then third, the interview with Nicodemus, John 3, verses 1 to 21. Now, there are three things in the interview with Nicodemus, three things. Number one, the inquiry, the question, the inquiry of Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Number 2, the answer or the reply of Jesus. John chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. The discourse on the new birth. And then number 3, the explanation. God's gift of his son. John 3, 16 to 21, as it is on the board. Now, when we come to John chapter 3, 16 to 21, as we do in two or three other places in the Gospel of John, we have to ask ourselves, are these the words which Jesus said, or is this a commentary of John, the writer of the Gospel, on what Jesus said? Now, when you boil it down, either way, it's ultimately what God says. See, what Jesus said, being God, is what God says. Now, what John said, since he said it, wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is what God says. So it really doesn't make any difference. But in the last analysis, I tend to believe that what we have in John 3, 16 to 21 is not the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, but the commentary of the evangelist, the writer, the apostle John, on this discourse. So we got three things. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we have the question of who. Then in verses 3 through 15, we have, secondly, the reply of who? Jesus. And then third, we have the explanation of John. See, those three things. Now, Jesus ended it on this new birth by saying, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that means lifted up on the cross. That is, whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, that was perplexing to Nicodemus, and it was perplexing to the Jews. It was perplexing, first of all, that, that, that God should send his son. That was perplexing. And then it was perplexing that the promised Messiah should die upon the cross, and then was perplexing why if God sent his son and he died upon the cross, why men did not respond to that gift. And John's going to deal with something here which I think is very important. And that is this. Why do men not respond to the gospel? He's going to take three verses to handle that. The last. See, that point four. Three verses to handle that. Now, in verses 16 to 21, I want to look at three or four things. Number one, the motive of God's gift of his son, that great verse, John 3, 16, on which more sermons probably been preached than any other verse of the Bible. Second, God's purpose in sending his son, not to condemn, but to save. But God's gift does not automatically save men. So number three, the response required to God's gift of his son, which is faith in God's son. But some of them don't respond in faith. Why? Well, the reason, he tells us in number four, the reason why men will not believe and are therefore condemned, verses 19 to 21. Now, we want to look at those four things tonight. 
The first one is the motive of God in sending his son. Verse 16. Now, this is an old familiar verse, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's one of the great gospel verses in all of the Bible, and no man probably is able to exhaust it. And you have probably heard half a dozen sermons on John 3.16. Probably it was the first verse you ever memorized, wasn't it? First verse my voice memorized wasn't John 3.16, was 2 Samuel 15.23. To obey is better than to sacrifice, or to obey is better than to pray, see, or to obey is to better than to get up and give a testimony. It's neither prayer nor obedience, uh, uh, or testimony any good if I'm living in disobedience to God's will. But John 3.16 is a great verse, and uh, I would not attempt to exhaust it. But I want quickly to point out six things in this verse. Six things. Number one, the motive. What is the motive in God sending his son? For God so loved the world. The motive is God's love. Why did God send his son? Why did Jesus die? Because God loved us. The originating cause of God's gift of his son and salvation is not our merit, but God's love. We are saved. Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace are you saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. That word freely, if I re memory recalls it, it's been six or seven years since I've taught that verse, my memory serves me, that word freely is doreon, doreon. And it's used in other places and translated without a cause. Being justified freely means being justified without any cause in me. God saw no cause in me to send his son. God saw no cause in me for which Jesus died. God saw no cause in me for which to save me. Why did God send his son? Because he loved me. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Now when it says God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, that means God the Father. Now, it's obvious that the triune God loved us, but specifically here he has in mind God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, do you know why I point that out? Well, I'll tell you why. I want you to listen very carefully. I believe in what's called substitutionary atonement. I believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross, and at the cross he bore the penal consequences of our sin in our place. That's called Penal vicarious atonement. The liberals don't believe it. And the liberals caricature our view of the substitutionary atonement by saying that we believe that God the Father is sort of a Shylock who demands his pound of flesh and who rather despises mankind, but that Jesus, whom they don't believe was God's son. Jesus, by his life and his love and his devotion, won God over to our side. See? That Jesus, by his death, earned one God's love to me. No, no, that's putting the horse before the cart, or the cart before the horse. It's not that Jesus died and by his death he won God's love to us. 
It's that God loved us and gave his son. His love is not the result of Jesus' death. His love is the cause of Jesus' death. And we don't believe there's any division within the Trinity. That, that the Jehovah of the Old Testament is a Shylock, a tyrant. And that Jesus, by his love and devotion, by his death upon the cross, won that tyrant over to our side so that now he loves us. That's unbiblical. And it's not what we believe when we believe in vicarious atonement. We believe that God, the judge himself, paid the penalty which he imposed upon us for our sin. And that by his death, God did not, Jesus didn't earn God's love. That Jesus' death is the outflow of God's love. And the only reason God gave his son is because Jesus, because God loved him. And that's a great truth that God loves all men, and that God wants all men to be saved. The doctrine of election, and I believe in the doctrine of election, but the doctrine of election must <clears throat> be balanced by three facts, that God loves all men, that any adequate doctrine of election and predestination, and I believe in election and predestination, but any adequate doctrine of election predestination must take in the three facts that God loves all men. What does the Bible say? For God so loved the elect. What does it say? God so loved the world. It must take in the fact that Jesus Christ died for all men. 1 John chapter 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world that Jesus died for all men, and that God wants no man to perish. What does the Bible say? 2 Peter 3, 9. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Now, I believe in election, and I believe in predestination on the one hand, but I also believe that God loves all men, that Christ died for all men, and that God wants no man to perish not willing that any should perish. See. Now you say, how do you put the two together? Well, I don't know precisely how to put the two together. What I do know is that if a man wants to hold his doctrine right, he better hold both of them. He better hold both to election and predestination because the Bible teaches it. But he better hold to the fact that God loves all men, that Christ died for all men, and that God wants all men to come to repentance. See? And if he holds them both, then he's going to hold the biblical then he's going to hold the uh, biblical doctrine himself. What is the motive? God's love. Secondly, not only the greatest motive, but secondly, the greatest object. For God so loved the Jew. Now, that's what the Jew thought that day, but no. God so loved the moral. No, no. He found the woman who was adulteress. He found the tax collector, Matthew, who was hated by his countrymen. Jesus found the worst of men and saved them. And he saved them just as easy as he saved the best of men. He didn't take any more energy for God to save the worst man. It does the best. Matter of fact, it probably takes a little more energy. Because you got to, you know, before you get a man saved, you got to get him lost. And sometimes it's harder to get a man lost than it is to get a man saved. 
And Jesus loved the greatest object, and that's the world. Jew, Gentile, all races, men of all standing, sinful, wretched. That was, that was put in there because John ran up, the, I guess, ran up against the idea, which Jesus did, that God only loved the Jew in his day. No, God loves all men. He loves all men. Third, the greatest degree. Not only the greatest motive, love, not only the greatest object, the world, but the greatest degree. What was the degree to which God loved the world? What degree? He gave his... That's right. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's the degree. What did Jesus say in John 15? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life. And God did that, see, in the person of his son. God gave pure gift. God gave his choicest gift. God gave his choicest gift, his son. Do you think it did not hurt God to give his son? Do you think that God has no feelings? That was the Greek view of God. The Greek view of God was apatheia, apatheia, patheia, pathos, 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 feelings. That A is the alpha primitive, no feelings. The God of the Greeks had no feelings, but not our God. Do you not think that God suffered a loss when he suffered the loss of his son? Certainly, certainly he did. God gave his choicest gift. He gave his son. And not only to give his choicest gift, he gave his choicest gift to the death upon the cross. I remember reading a story, came out of World War II. Pastor was called upon, you know, and during World War II, uh, whenever a, a family lost a son in war, the War Department often would inform the pastor and ask the pastor to go to the home and tell the family. And a certain family lost the son in action. They didn't know it. The War Department contacted the pastor. And the pastor went to the home, went inside, came right to the point, which is the best way, and said, I've come to bring you some sad news. Now, I have no easy way of telling you. The War Department has informed me that your son was killed in action. And they're sure of it. Your son is dead, killed in action. And the father broke out, and he's, they were Christians, and the father broke out, and, you know, and not unexpectedly, and said, Pastor, where was God when my son died? Where was God when my son died? And the pastor replied, all I can say to that is that God was in the same place when your son died that he was when his son died. Do you not think that God the Father felt the loss of his son? He did. And God searched, so to speak, all heaven, and God found his choicest gift. He gave his son. What would be the hardest thing you would have to give up? Your son, your daughter. And God gave his choicest gift. We don't want to conceive of God as, you know, an unfeeling tyrant. Now, God is immutable. He doesn't change. He's not subject to the passions to which we are subject. But at the same time, he feels. He's not willing that any should perish. He loves, 
and he hates sin. And he loves sinners. And he loved above all else his son. But God so loved you and me that he was willing to give his only begotten son and give him even his death. The greatest degree. That's the meaning of the word S-O. For God so loved. He loved to the extent that he gave his only begotten son. And then fourth, the greatest invitation. The greatest invitation. What is it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? The non-elect. Now, what does it say? That whosoever believeth, whoever believes on him, whoever believes on him. And you know the best thing to do, my friend? Put your name there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that should James B. Crichton believe on him, he should not perish, but have eternal life. See, that's the best way, if you can do it. If you can do it. You can do it, see. You can do it by personal faith in Christ. Whosoever, whosoever will may come. That's the greatest invitation. Then I change one. Number five, the simplest condition. What is the condition which, by which, on which God offers us salvation? Yeah, who, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth. That's a condition. Now, have you ever stopped to think, why does God, why did God choose that condition as a condition for salvation? Why didn't God choose the condition of keeping the Ten Commandments? Well, obviously nobody could. Why didn't God uh, state the condition if I went through certain rites? I was baptized and joined the church. See, why did he do that? Why did God choose this thing called faith? Well, um, you know, there are a lot of things that some people cannot do. There's some things that some people all over the world cannot do. You can do one thing, another person can do another. But believing on Jesus is something, see, that all men could do because they all got will. But there's a deeper reason, and it's this. Faith has no merit in it. There's not going to be any boasting in heaven. Nobody's going to walk around heaven with his thumbs in his suspenders and saying, because nobody's going to have suspenders. You won't have any pants in heaven, I don't think, you see. I don't believe so. Are they going to have clothing stores? Mr. Higgins, uh, I have to ask the man over here. I don't think the arson won't need any suspenders. But uh, anyway, nobody's going to go around with his thumbs, see, in his suspenders, so to speak, and say, I got here by my effort. No boasting in heaven. Now, if there's no boasting in heaven, God's going to have to offer it on a condition which excludes boasting. By keeping the Ten Commandments 50% of the time, I'd have some room for boasting. By being saved by being baptized, I'd have some room for boasting. By being saved by offering a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, I'd have some ground for boasting. But see, faith is nothing. Faith is simply the hand of the heart. There's no merit in faith. If I took out of my wallet uh, a dollar bill, I just got a five. <laughs> I was going to do it, but now I'm not. See, <laughs> If I took out this $5 bill 
and, and, and tendered it. Now, notice I didn't say give. See, I took out this $5 bill and tendered it to Mr. Matthews now. Now, with his taking that $5 bill, make it $5.50? Would it make it $5.05? Doesn't increase the value of that at all, does it? Am I receiving Jesus Christ by faith? does not increase my salvation. It adds nothing to it. Faith is not meritorious. For by grace are you saved. Yeah, we're not saved technically by faith. We're saved through faith. We're saved by grace. We're saved on the ground of the death of Jesus, and we're saved through faith. That little pipe that brings the water into my home doesn't add anything to the water. It's simply the channel by which the water comes into my home, see. Faith doesn't add anything to my salvation. It's the hand that receives the gift that God puts in it. It's the hand of the heart. Doesn't add anything. So then who gets credit? God does. That's why he's established faith. So that God gets all the credit. He gets all the credit. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, six the greatest consequence. Should not, what is that consequence? Should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Should not perish. That doesn't mean, uh, perishing doesn't mean annihilation. Doesn't mean annihilation. Should not perish eternally in hell, but have eternal life. All right, there's that great motive. God's gift of his son. Why did God give his son to die upon the cross? Because he loved us poor sinners. I always think of that connection, that beautiful little phrase in Charles Wesley's hymn. Charles Wesley wrote some magnificent hymns. His brother was John Wesley. John Wesley, you know, founded the Methodist Church. He was a great gospel preacher. He was also, by the way, a great student. He'd ride on horseback to his preaching appointments, and while he was riding on horseback to his preaching appointments, he'd let the reins run loose, and he would read his Greek New Testament while riding. Now, don't try that in the car. Don't even try the new American standard in the car, see? But he did that. And his brother was Charles Wesley, wrote over 6,000 hymns, and they're magnificent. One of, the, one of the finest is that hymn that goes, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be? Now, it's a question. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? See, you underscore two things there. Number one, that that person who died on the cross was God Almighty, the second member of the Trinity. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? But the second thing is, he couldn't understand it. Couldn't understand it. Nor can I. Why did God love me? What did he see in me? Nothing. 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 What did he owe me? Nothing. Why did he save me? For reasons that lie or lay 
the lie. Let me change that. For reasons that <laughs> rest only in himself, see? <laughs> see, that's the best way. The reasons that lie only within himself, see, those are the only reasons. Not anything in me. I didn't merit. I was saved without a cause. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Secondly, God's purpose in sending his Son, verse 17. God's purpose in sending his Son, John 3, 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, why did John state this? Well, he stated because some believe, perhaps, that God's Messiah had come primarily to judge. That idea comes out in the interbiblical literature. The interbiblical literature is the literature that was written by Jews for the Jews during the ending of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, called interbiblical literature. And the interbiblical literature focuses a great deal on the coming of the Messiah. But often in the picture of the Messiah that's going to come, it's a picture of judgment, severe judgment, severe judgment upon Israel's enemies. And that may be why John said, no, Jesus came not to condemn, not to condemn, but to save. God sent, verse 17, sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, God's purpose in sending his son was not to condemn, but to save. God has long suffered, not willing that any should perish. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Now, if a man refuses God's gift, then all there's left is judgment. See? Man refuses God's gift, then all there's left is judgment. But God didn't send his son to judge, but to save. Verse 17, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God's intent is that the world might be saved. Don't read that, by the way, that the world of the elect might be saved. God sent his son to the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Now, we don't believe... I don't believe, this school doesn't believe, in universalism. We don't believe that all men ultimately will be saved. I do believe that Jesus died for all men, but God lays down the condition. That condition is that a man has to trust Jesus in order to be saved. But God's intent was not to send his son. To send his son, in sending his son, was not to condemn, but that men might be saved through him. Remember uh, a story that I heard years and years ago. I think I first heard it from Vernon McGee, but I may have been mistaken. It took place in, 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 a, in a large city in Texas. A uh, young man came before a judge, uh, and this goes back many years ago, I suppose into the 30s. A young man came before a judge, and he had been convicted of murder in the first degree, and the jury returned and found him guilty of murder in the first degree. And the judge asked the young man to come forward, stand before the, the, uh, the judge's desk, and uh, while he pronounced the verdict. He asked for the verdict of the jury, said they found 
the young man guilty of murder in the first degree. The judge, after um, saying a few words, then said, um, pronounced the verdict again, and then, and, uh, and then said to the young man, I'm going to sentence you to die by hanging, and he named the date. The young man said to the judge, oh, judge, don't you remember who I am? The judge said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. He said, I remember, years so ago, you were the young man of certain corner, and thoughtlessly, inattentively, you stepped out into the traffic against the red light, and I reached out and grabbed you and pulled you back and saved you from certain death. The young man said, that's right. Can't you do anything for me? And the judge replied, son, last year I was your savior. Today I am your judge. Jesus Christ did not come in this world to condemn them. He came to save them. But once they refuse God's gift, then there's nothing left but judgment. Those are the only two options not a third. He that hath the death of Jesus does not automatically save man. So we come to the third point, and that is the response required to God's gift. And that's verse 18. Let's read it together. I'll read it audibly now. Verse 18. God sent his son, but the gift of God's son doesn't save automatically or mechanically. A man must respond. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of his own, of the only begotten Son of God. God's gift doesn't automatically save. One must respond in faith in order to be saved. Now, notice three things here. First, notice the state of the believer. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth is not condemned. That is... He, his judgment for him is over. God's taken his case out of the docket of heaven. He's in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, there's therefore now no condemn judgment to them that are in Christ Jesus. John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me shall not come into condemnation, but is already passed from death unto life. I want to tell you something. That was a great truth when that dawned upon my soul. For a long time, even after I started preaching, I trembled at the thought of hell and whether or not I might, like pilgrim progress, like John Bunyan's pilgrim, might at the very end slip back and slide into hell. And it was a great day when I read that verse, John 5, 24, and it dawned upon me that God had already taken my case out of the dock of heaven. And unlike some religious liberals or political liberals, heaven doesn't believe in double jeopardy. Once my case has been tried, once I've embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, then God takes my case out of the dock of heaven, never to put it back, see. I am not condemned. I'm not, if I trusted Jesus, then my case is settled. God never resurrects my case. Where does he put my sin? As far as the east is from the west. 
buried him in the deepest sea, put him behind his back, remembers them no more. Can God forget? No, he doesn't forget. What does it mean he doesn't remember them no more? It means he'll never bring them up against him. See, you do just the opposite, and I do it the same. Somebody does something against me. You know, and time goes on. It, it gets in my claw, wherever the claw is located. <laughs> it gets down inside my claw, and, you know, time goes along, and it gets down there, and just like a burr, it, it, it aggravates me and aggravates me. But as time goes on, I forget what it was. But 10 years later, when I meet that fella, I just automatically have a negative reaction, see? I don't remember what it is. You know what happened? I forgot it, but I didn't forgive it. God did just the opposite. Being God, he can't forget. He never forgets, but he never brings it up again. Once he forgives, perfect, perfect, perfect forgiveness. Once I trust the Lord Jesus, then God takes my case out of the dark of heaven. You've been struggling with that? May I say to you, once you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, God takes your case out of the dark of heaven, never to put it back there again, see? God doesn't believe in double jeopardy. Do you know how many sins Jesus has tried for as far as I'm concerned? All of my sins, past, present, future, every one of them is taken care of by the cross of Jesus. And once I trust God, Son, and Savior, and God takes my case out of the dark to heaven, and heaven doesn't believe in double jeopardy, so God doesn't put my case back in there again. But, now, verse 18, but, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now, I want to say two things about that. He that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, when you look up here, I want to say two things. I know some of you look down right, but I think one or two of you may be sleeping. See, that's why I say look. Now, first is this. I hear a man say, well, listen, uh, you know, when you, you present the gospel to him and ask him if he'll trust the Lord Jesus as Savior, he said, no, I'll take my chances. I'll take my chances. I'll try to luck it out at the judgment day. I'll see how I stand then. I tell him, your chances are zero. See, it's not that you are going to go someday to the judgment, and then God is going to put it on the scales and see how you come out. I'm already judged. See, all the judgment, the great white throne judgment is, is to exhibit God's justice in doing what he did. My case, if I'm an unsaved person here tonight, my case has already gone to court. I've already been found guilty. I'm already due. I'm already lost. I'm already under judgment. I don't wait my case. My case has already been to court. I'm lost and doomed right now. He that believeth not is condemned already. Already. Now, the second thing I want to say is, that, is this. I hear this idea float around that, that the reason why a man is lost is because he doesn't trust Jesus, Christ the Savior. That God judges me, not because of my sin. That was all settled at the cross. The reason God judges me, if I refuse his son, 
out there yonder in the future, it's because I refuse Jesus as Savior, not because of my sin. The question is not the question of my sin, it's the question of the Son. Now that's half true, it's half false. See? No, no. When I get out there, if I'm a lost person, the ground of God's case against me, the basis on which he judges me, is first my sin, and second, because I refuse the remedy. See? The basis of judging me is my sin, my sin, my violation of the law of God. And then secondly, because I refuse God's remedy. Suppose and, uh, here was a man that, uh, let's say here was a man who had a case, well, let's say a case of cancer, an almost fatal case of cancer. Matter of fact, a certain fatal case of cancer if he doesn't take this remedy. The doctor offers him the remedy. The man refuses the remedy, and therefore he dies of cancer. Now, I ask you, why did the man die? Why did the man die? Because he refused? No, no. He died because he had the cancer. Refusement is the reason why he didn't live. See? He did it. He died because he had the cancer. Refusing the remedy, refusing the remedy only sealed his death. Now, if I get over yonder as an unconverted person, and God judges me, he's going to judge me for two things. He's going to judge me for my sin. My sin. My sin. He's going to judge me for my sin. Then secondly, since I've heard the gospel, he's going to judge me doubly because I refuse God's remedy. But he's going to judge me for both of these. Now, do you know why I'm saying that? I'm saying that because I hear this theory that floats around among some evangelicals, that the only ground on which God is going to judge me is my refusal of Christ as Savior. That's half true, it's half false. God is first going to judge me because of my sin. Secondly, he's going to judge me because I refuse the remedy, and that is his son. Now, finally, let's go to the fourth point. The reason why men will not believe in Jesus Christ, and therefore are condemned. Now, this is a very, very important analysis of unbelief. Why do men not believe? Does that ever perplex you? It does me. Does me. Here's a man that comes to church. He sits in church for many years. Man or woman or boy and girl sits under the sound of the gospel, and he hears the gospel, and... Uh, he knows that the gospel is true. He knows that he's lost. He believes that Jesus is God. He believes that Jesus Christ died for him. He believes that Jesus Christ could save him, and he knows he ought to trust Christ as Savior, but he doesn't. Why? Why? Why does he not trust Christ as Savior? Not because the evidence is inadequate. God has given to us sufficient light, not because of the hypocrites in the church, and not because he is one, he is not one of the elect. See? 
Now, I believe in the lecture. I believe, in, I believe if I get to heaven, it will be purely 100% because of God's grace. But if I go to hell, it's not because I am not one of the elect. It's because of what Jesus said here, the reason that Jesus or John stated here. Why does a man not believe? Very simply, men don't believe in Christ because they love their sin. See? The problem is not intellectual, it's moral. Now look at what, look at what the Bible says, John 3, 19. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. There's adequate evidence. Light has come to the, man, the world. And why didn't men come to Jesus? Men loved what? Rather than light because their deeds are evil. Why doesn't a man come to Christ? Man loves darkness rather than light. Look at verse 20, verse 20. For everyone that practices evil hates the light. And he won't come to the light. He won't come to Christ because lest his deeds should be reproved. What does that mean? lest his deeds should be convicted, and he'd have to quit them. And he loves his sin. And rather than give up his sin, he came to Jesus. He gives up Jesus and keeps his sin. Why does a man not come to Christ? Because he enjoys his sin. Man says to me, you know the reason I don't trust God? I have an intellectual difficulty. See? I say, what is her name? See? <laughs> Because you find that most problems are not intellectual, they're moral. The reason the man doesn't come to Jesus is because he doesn't want to come to Jesus. Because he came to Christ, he'd have to give up a sin. He knows that. Men love their sin. Verse 20, for everyone that practices evil hates the light, neither comes to light, neither comes. He does not come. Now look at that very carefully. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, because he is not one of the elect. Is that what it says? Why does he not come? His deeds would be reproved. He'd be exposed. He'd have to quit him. And he doesn't want to quit him. So he doesn't come to Jesus. But he that practices truth, he that pra keeps coming closer to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. All right, we come to the end of our study of the great section on new birth. I want to close by saying two things. Let me review something I gave you last time. This is the great verses, John 3, 1 to 21, great passage, the greatest passage in all of the Bible on the new birth. Now, what is the new birth? The new birth is turning over a new leaf. Is that right? Yeah, Adam tried that, you know. He turned over a new fig leaf. It didn't work. <laughs> you know the first thing God did in saving Adam? He stripped him. The only tree isn't interesting. Adam tried to make a garment of fig leaves, and God stripped him of that and gave him a garment that God had made. The only tree that Jesus cursed was a fig tree. Now, is there, was that symbolic? I know it was literal, but I mean, was that also symbolic? I don't know, but it sure makes a good sermon. 
singing, Lord. <laughs> you know, you sacrifice a point once in a while, but that's the only thing that Jesus cursed. Symbol of human righteousness. The new birth is a supernatural act of God by which he gives to the believing sinner a new spiritual life. What is the new birth? The new birth is simply the act of God by which he gives me eternal life. That's very simple, isn't it? What is the new birth? The act of God. Instantaneous. Instantaneous. The instantaneous act of God by which he gives me eternal life. Now, what are the five elements of the new birth? We just touched those last time, but I'm just going to repeat them. Remember five elements? Number one, the motive. What is the motive, John 3:16? For God so, what is the motive, the originating cause of the new birth? The love of God. Number two, what is the basis? The death of Jesus. As Mo, John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man. What is the basis? Now look here. What is the basis by which God can take me a lost sinner, give me spiritual life, and bring me into heaven. The basis of that is that God dealt with my sin at the cross. The basis of the new birth is the death of Jesus. Number three, the agent. Who is the agent of the new birth? Holy Spirit. John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wants to. You hear the sound, can't tell where it comes from, whether it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Number four, what is the instrument? The Word of God. Holy Spirit uses the Word of God, except a man be born of water, that's the Word, and the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. First Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And number five, what is the condition of the new birth? Believing in Jesus Christ. Now, one more thing. I want to close with this. I've only, as far as I can recall, only once in all the years that I preached have I preached a sermon on why do men not believe on Jesus? I preached it many years ago at the Open Door Bible Church. Why do men not believe in Jesus? And I studied the Bible on that because that's a perplexing question. You know, you got it. Here's a hole. Here's a hole. Can't be circumstances. Can't be heredity because here's a hole. Two boys grew up in that home. Both got the same, you know, same parents, same culture, same environment, same advantages, same disadvantages. Both grew up in the same home. One of them trusts the Lord Jesus as Savior and, and becomes an active Christian, whatever work he may be engaged in. The other doesn't trust the Lord Jesus as Savior, goes off into a life of sin and ends his life in tragedy. Why? Why? Why do men come to church, you know, week after week? They know what's right. They know they ought to trust Christ. They give you the plan of salvation. I've run across men that could give me the plan of salvation more clearly than some Christians. And yet when you ask them, have you trusted the Lord Jesus, 
they'll tell you honestly, no, I haven't. And you say, why? And they hem and haw around, you know. Well, I'm going to wait or just hem and haw around, which means they have no good reason. Why do men not trust the Lord Jesus? When I look at my Bible, I find there are four basic reasons. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're through. Number one, number one, peer pressure. That's the social reason, peer pressure. John chapter 5, and we're not going to be able to turn to it. All we're able to do is to write it down. John chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. How can you believe who receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God alone? You want the praise of men. We call this peer pressure, and it's very strong, and it's very strong among young people, and it's strong down at the office, you know, where there may be 30 fellows down there, and I'm the only Christian, and they're all telling dirty stories, and if I stand out and tell them I'm not going to listen to it, it'll mean some pressure on me, so I'll kind of slide away. Peer pressure. These Jews, Jesus said, did not come to him because they wanted the praise of their compadres, their colleagues, rather than the prayer of praise of God. Peer pressure. Number two, I-D-O-L-S, idols, idols. That's the story of the rich young ruler. What is that? Luke chapter 13, the rich young ruler. If that's not Luke 13, you'll have to find it. The rich young ruler. You remember that young ruler came to Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus loved him. You know, the Bible doesn't say that too often. Man comes to Jesus. The Bible says Jesus looked at this young man. He loved him. He had some qualities about him that were very attractive. Very attractive. And um, he said, good master, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he made four mistakes there, which I'm not going to go into. Jesus said, keep the law. Now, he can't be saved by keeping the law, but he knew what the young man had in his mind. The young man said, oh, no, I've kept all the law. Jesus said, all right, sell all you have, give to the poor, come after me. Does that mean that I have to sell all I have, give to the poor in order to be saved? No, that doesn't. What Jesus was doing was he was demonstrating to this young man that there was something that he was putting first before God. And, it, and the Bible says that the young man went away sorrowfully because he had great wealth. He had an idol. That idol may be faith. It may be a sin. It may be wealth. It may be prestige. But something that I put before I put God, I don't want to give it up. man came to Campbell Morgan one time said to Mr. Campbell Morgan, Mr. Campbell Morgan, he said, Dr. Morgan, now you listening? Dr. Morgan, he said, I smoke. Will I have to give up smoking in order to become a Christian? Because if I have to give up smoking in order to become a Christian, I won't become a Christian. Do I have to give it up? Campbell Morgan said, yes although Campbell Morgan himself smoked. See? Westminster Chapel, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you read his book, The Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the successor of Campbell Morgan, used to come to the college where I attended. 
before I attended it and preached there. One of the world's greatest preachers, yeah, Campbell Morgan, you know, in the British culture, smoke. The man said, can I be saved? Well, I have to give up my smoke in order to be saved. Because I will, I won't be saved. Campbell Morgan said, yes, yes. What did he mean? He mean that a man couldn't be safe if he didn't quit smoking. He didn't mean that at all. What he meant was, you're trying to lay down the condition. And you're saying there's something that you consider more important than Jesus Christ. And as long as you do that, then you can't be saved. An idol. Third reason. Third reason. Third reason. Third reason is pride. Galatians 5.11. Galatians 5.11, pride. Mr. Hickman, can you turn off that, air, that heat up there? I see about two or three of these men on the front seat going to sleep. Just, yeah, that's it. It says heat, go over the center, right. That's all right. I don't mind going to sleep, but two of them are snoring. All right, now, <laughs> all right, now, uh, pride. It says, if Paul says, if I yet preach circumcision, now look up here. Where, then, is the offense of the cross? That's strange. If I yet preach circumcision, then there's no offense to the cross. What did Paul mean? He meant, if I preach that God will save you 95%, that you can have 5%, you can do something, you get circumcised, then the offense of the cross is gone. What is the offense of the cross? The offense of the cross is to come to people, especially who are cultured, well-bred, well-mannered, been moral all their life, and tell them they're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to come to God with. That demolishes pride. And pride keeps many a man. That's why, you know, you tell a man, you quit drinking, and, you know, you'll get better, and you might even get saved. So a man quits drinking, and the place of drink comes a sin of pride. And now he's probably five times harder to reach for Christ. Now, I don't mean to say that justifies drinking. I'm not saying that. But if all you do is to get a man to quit a sin, you've hardened him in his opposition to God. You remember what Jesus said? It was a house. They swept out one demon, but they left it empty. And seven worse ones came in. Number four, the fourth reason why men don't come to Jesus is the one that, Jesus, that the Bible speaks of right here. Their sin. Their sin. That's the basic one. Why does the man come to Christ? Because he loves his sin. As long as he loves his sin, more than he loves Jesus Christ, then he's not going to come to Christ as Savior. All right, Mr. Hickman, we can...